0: This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Lisa and Lani. Lisa is the principal and founder of the Retail Strategy Group out of Toronto. She has been in the retail industry for over 20 years. She comes to the retail industry with background in buying and merchandising. She's worked at places like Ralph Lauren Global and Club Monaco. I'm excited for her to be here. Welcome to the show, Lisa.
1: Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited talk shop.
0: (laughs) So Lisa, tell us a little bit more about who you are and the retail strategy group.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, as you said, I have about two decades working in this amazing industry of retail. Um, started on the shop floor. I have my degree in fashion uh, marketing. So I'm not, I'm a little bit opposite of Ron Thurston, who is accidental um, in retail. I'm the exact opposite um, from that respect, where I purposely love fashion and retail. And that's where I've spent most of my career. Um, working across the globe, Ralph Lauren and Monaco, as you said, and um, I've, the last three years I've spent in consulting, I was with uh, Accenture uh, for a bit and I worked with um, some great brands, Walmart, um, Nike, and uh, did some really amazing stuff. Um, the one thing that I did find working in that consulting world was that there weren't a lot of um, retail insiders uh, that have actually created products. Um, from start to finish, understood the end-to-end retail process. So that's something that I really wanted to do with my firm. Uh, And what we do is we help retailers uh, dramatically improve profitability, increase uh, efficiencies across how they work, especially around speed to market, getting closer to the customer, um, merchandising optimization, especially now that we have such a huge digital presence. So understanding what the assortment um, actually means across channel. And then, um I also work with uh, shopping malls. <laughs> I work with retail um, tech companies, supply chain and logistics folks, just giving them a better understanding of um, the retail landscape from a merchant perspective.
0: Excellent. I can't wait to dive into it. But <laughs> first, I want to know a little bit more about Lisa.
1: Okay. I'm ready.
0: I got three questions for you. Are you ready?
1: I'm ready? Fire All away. Right. Question <laughs>
0: one. When is the last time you did something for the first time?
1: Well, I mean, that's a very relevant question because I started my own practice. Um, but I would say that the first time I ever did something was around content creation, writing my newsletter. I think that was it, extremely uncomfortable because <laughs> I'm not a writer, I'm a retailer, but um, I have a lot to say. So it's, um, it's been great writing under the merchant life, but it, it still takes me a while. Um, I'm not an expert by any means in writing, but I have a lot of content. So that is the thing that I guess I've um, never done before.
0: Excellent. Question two. What is one thing most people agree with, but you do not?
1: Whoa, that's a great question. Um, I have a lot of retail friends and and I, um, a lot of buyer friends. Uh, one thing they do not agree with me on is... When I say you have to stop buying from your gut, gut feelings, I don't believe in that. Uh, and that's something we have a lot of that, there's a lot of heated discussions around that where you know, my buyer friends cannot wait to get back to travel and going to trade shows and which I'm all for, but um, I think using data is so important. And th- that is where I think I get into a lot of heated discussions.
0: <laughs> I can imagine. I guess, what do you think of the Mickey Drexler days of these excellent merchants who were amazing at spotting trends and knowing what the next fashion trend was going to be? What do you say to that person who was really good at that?
1: Well, I think you still, you still need those qualities. You still need um, that uh, passion for delighting the customer, for finding great products and newness. Uh, but that means you have to know your customer really, really, really well. Uh, customers are, are evolving. We we both know that we work in the space. But the one thing that can help us come to those decisions is data and insights driven from data. So that's where I would say you need you need both. I'm not saying don't use your um, intuition, but I'm saying you cannot say that you can only like buying from your gut is is not a thing. It shouldn't be a thing.
0: How much in the merchant world is it art versus science? What percentage is art? What percentage is science?
1: Well, I talk about this quite a lot. Um, I would say, if I think of a percentage, um, it's almost 50-50, I would say, which you know, a lot of people will, will not like that I say, <laughs> but it is because I think that you can't only use data and you can't only use science um, and you have to have some level of creativity to be a retailer because um, if you're not, you're, you're a robot, you're transactional, you're Amazon. Um, so I think it's, I I would say 50, 50. Okay.
0: Last question. Okay. One skill you don't possess, but wish you did.
1: Oh, I love this question. Um, I have this extreme passion for music. I wish I was a DJ. I have dreamt of being a DJ my entire life. Um, I have a lot of DJ friends and they always say, you know, we'll teach you. I'm like, I don't think I could do this, but it's it's a passion for sure. I, I would love, love to learn um,
0: DJ. I, th- I think DJ and Lanny sounds pretty cool.
1: Right?
0: Oh, thank you for playing that game with me and answering those three questions. We call that clear the air. And I think it gives the listeners a little bit more about who you are. So thank you.
1: Of course.
0: Let's jump into a little bit of retail. When you said what the Retail Strategy Group does, you mentioned a lot of big things. Can you give me an example of a project that you're working on or you worked on recently to give a little bit more specificity to the listener who might not have been able to put their finger on exactly what you're all doing.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I work with a lot of uh, digitally native brands, uh, especially in that soft line space. So uh, whether it's fashion, uh, apparel, accessories, footwear, um, and what I do is I help them to understand what the fundamentals of retail buying is as they're looking to scale, especially as they are looking to go um, online to offline or scaling to um, sell to a department store. What do they need? Even things like line sheets, like simplifying the way that they present to a, a retail store buyer or a department store buyer. So that's that's one area where I will help uh, digitally native brands, but it's also around strategy of scaling. So uh, using what you've learned from your customer online and how that will help to inform assortment decisions offline. So it's almost like omni strategy, but around the assortment specifically.
0: What do you typically find is the biggest mistake digitally native brands make as it relates to buying in their product assortment?
1: I think the biggest challenge uh, with any retailer, all retailers that I've actually worked with in my entire career, is that they put the same effort into every single product. Uh, not all products requires the same effort, especially around development. And not all product has the same purpose. So not only is it about depth and quantity, but it's also about effort. So if you have a black t-shirt, for example, that you have across seasons, uh, it's a basic item, that's something that should always be in stock. You shouldn't go recreating the wheel and um, designing a whole tech pack, for example, for that basic t-shirt. What you need to put your effort into is innovation, is newness, is what is going to delight the customer. Um, I would say it, it's really around that and I've seen that across all brands.
0: That's a really interesting answer and great insights. That leads me to the next. What do the digitally native brands do from an assortment buying that might be better than the traditional merchants and brick and mortar retailers?
1: I think they're able to action uh, a lot quicker uh, in terms of if something is selling or not selling. And um, when you go into a physical store, the the Products that may ha- be your bottom sellers may be maybe the ones that are actually attracting the customers into the store. Uh, when you're in a physical store, you might cut those bottom sellers because you're like, well, they're not, you know, they're not doing well. Uh, but online, you're able to actually action things a lot more quick. Um, and the endless aisle and that concept around endless aisle, I think, can be used uh, in a positive way. Uh, there's a lot of times where I've seen the endless aisle be taken advantage of and the assortments are way too big. But I think there is a happy medium there, especially around um, sustainability and developing less and avoiding over production. So I think there's a lot of concepts in there, but um, I think that a digitally native brand has a lot going for them in terms of what they're getting from the data per product on their site.
0: And what do the brick and mortar legacy brands, or even not legacy, just even if they're newer, but primarily brick and mortar, what do they do better than the digitally native as it relates to merchandising and buying?
1: Customer service, Um, really understanding the customer, being in front of them. I think that there is so much value for brand ambassadors in the store and how they can relate to a customer one-on-one, face-to-face. Yes, of course, we have live shopping. We have uh, the ability to chat online and use AI and all those wonderful, wonderful tools. But there is nothing like the experience of actually talking to somebody in front of you, uh, showing them product, helping them style if you're in fashion. And building that rapport with, with your customer is something that the physical store does so, so well or they have the ability to do so
0: well. Do you find that the traditional retailers are more experienced at buying and merchandising than the digitally native or no? I
1: wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Um, I'd say that there's a lot of veterans out there that are still doing the same job. Uh, and that to me means that they're not evolving and they're not using new tools or new systems um, to make better decisions around their customer or they don't know their customer. That's a big challenge. As the customer continues to evolve, which is what we saw in the pandemic, um, a lot of legacy retailers where there are folks that have been in the same roles forever, especially in buying and merchandising, it's very difficult um, to change behaviors. And retailers, we don't like change really and truly. Um, So I think that's where I see a disconnect with, the newer buyers versus the old timers. But I'm not saying the old timers can't change, but maybe the willingness is not as as evident as it would be in a digitally native brand or a new buyer.
0: Appreciate the thoughts. Very interesting take, mm-hmm. very unique take. I'm interested being on the buying side and how important you think the omni-channel experience is for retailers. Super important.
1: Uh, when you look at the customer, which everything should start with looking at the customer, you have to look at the customer in the middle. Um, when you're thinking about Omni, you're thinking about the entire holistic organic experience that a customer experiences. And that means the customer is in the middle and everything else is a subsection of what the customer wants, needs, or doesn't even know they want yet. And... Um, Omnichannel is really about that seamless experience and that's what the customer should be, that's what they should have on their shopping buying journey is a seamless experience whether they're engaging with uh, let's say the Nike app to to run or uh, they're going into a local store and all the products that they have already um, worn or looked at online are available in the store. So I think that in terms of Omni, it's really about that seamless ex- experience. And the customer doesn't know channel. They don't differentiate a brand because of their channel. They want the best experience from that brand as a whole, whether it is using the app to exercise or going into the store, or going you know being part of a running club, um, or listening to the Spotify playlist, for
0: example. At what point do you start pushing a digitally native brand to open stores?
1: That that's an interesting question. I I feel, from my experience, most digitally native brands are looking to scale, and the way to scale is to open a store, whether it's a pop up or um, partnering with a, a department store. It's important for that brand if they want to scale, to really understand where their customer is, where they want to shop, what they want to what they want from the assortment in a physical store versus their online stores, it could be the same. Uh, but yeah, I think it's very important for for online to shift offline if they're looking to scale.
0: Yeah, if they're looking to scale. So we typically see that at about $10 million in revenue, usually means there are multiple markets and customer acquisition costs are starting to get really expensive. That's a number where offline starts to make sense. Or we see typically in like Series C funding at that round, people are starting to open up stores. Not everybody wants to be Warby or untuck it, but you know there's nothing wrong with having a million dollar business and wanting to stay there. That's that is what it is. But if you're looking to scale, I think Omni is quite.
1: I think ASOS is a great example of that. Um, you know, coming and you know living and working in the UK, ASOS. You know, we all shopped at ASOS. You know, not even like half a day delivery. It was amazing. Um, but knowing that they didn't open any stores until they understood what their physical strategy was, and the whole reason why they acquired Topshop was because of that relationship with Nordstrom, and that's how they're going to infiltrate that physical store, physical customer, um, which is super interesting, and, you know, let's see what happens, because Topshop was dying. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how ASOS works with Nordstrom to possibly develop the great the greatest product mix that the top shop customers have ever seen. That will be interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm curious to see who this is better for, whether it's ASOS or Nordstrom, because I think it was an interesting yes. move by Nordstrom because <laughs> you know now Nordstrom, you know, owns more brands. Call it, I don't know if you call it the D to C model and but You know, they're owning brands now, which I think is interesting.
1: Yeah. And it depends, like, if they're owning the whole brand and will it be part part of their private label um, assortment or product mix? Or is it that, uh, you know, like the ASOS relationship where they have a stake in Topshop? Um, What's going to be interesting is how they're going to fill in the gaps that they have right now with that Topshop assortment to generate more sales from that Gen Z and younger
0: customer. Sure. What else is top of mind today, Lisa? What else is top of mind for you?
1: Oh my God, so many things. Um, you know, besides the whole, you know, getting to the moon as fast as possible. <laughs> um, you know that that story. Like I just, it's very hard to get my head wrapped around um, Bezos right now. But uh, uh, Amazon, I think, is is still such a powerhouse. Um, and I I really believe in shopping local. Um, and just pushing that sustainability metric and really for brands to adhere to these claims that they're making. That's something
0: that's top of mind for me. Are you finding that brands are not adhering to the sustainability claims that they're making?
1: Yes, yes, yes. yes. It doesn't help that there are so many sustainability metrics out there. Uh, I think there's over 456 um, credibility uh, type Claims that fashion companies and retail companies can make. So I think that what the UN doing is, is doing is really great with the UN uh, Triple FC. Um, but the challenge is that only parts of retailers' um, processes are being put in the forefront on what they're doing around sustainability, whether it is, you know, material production or um, how they are becoming you know, more circular, which is great. I love that, you know, circularity and resale is, is top of mind for a lot of brands, but I think we still, as consumers especially, need to understand what is the impact of each brand to the climate and what does, what does it really mean? Um, how does it translate to um, what it could mean for the future for, for us as, as humankind?
0: All this same day, next day delivery, a lot of fossil fuels being used to make that happen. Yep. What's your take on that?
1: I think it's problematic. I think that uh, a lot of brands are are trying to do better in terms of um, not doing same day or shipping from store, but allocating goods to store that they know that customers are going to buy in that local region to cut that carbon footprint. Um, Packaging, I think, is something that brands need to look at a little bit harder. And, you know, even if the package is small, there's a lot of plastic waste in there. Uh, We know that from beauty. But I think that um, there's a lot of work to be done here. And I think it really comes from brands being uh, more transparent in what they're doing and what it's costing not only the environment, but what it's costing them. So, what does it really cost them to? to implement same day or next day delivery, does it cost more than what what the cost of the product is? Then we know that, okay, something's wrong here.
0: If they can't charge that to the consumer, then yes. But I guess if you want a next day, a pack of Wrigley gum that's 25 cents or same day, I don't think you're ever going to bring that cost down to the pack of Wrigley gum. You know, Timberland, they had done something, I don't know where they're at on it, but they had announced a few months ago that you took delivery later they would plant a tree in your name, which obviously resonates yeah. with the customer. I think when you look at the Walmart, the Target, the Amazon customer, one of the things that they're craving and is a priority today is value. They're craving convenience. They're craving the experience of all of them, which makes sustainability a real challenge.
1: And I think that's why you know a lot of retailers are encouraging buy online, pick up in store or return in store. Uh, that's something that not only encourages a shift in that last mile uh, process methodology, but if retailers could be a little bit more forthcoming on what is the impact of you returning in-store versus us sending you a, a package label and you returning it by the same box, as an example. I think that if retailers and brands are a lot more transparent and there's visibility around um, what things could cost the environment, not necessarily monetary cost. um, I think that could be interesting. Like what you see in like an Allbirds label, for example. I think that the more transparent retailers and brands are the more customers are informed and they can make better decisions.
0: At a minimum right now, it's hard to see a path where delivering to the home is less expensive than buy online, pick up and store. Right now it's more profitable to do buy online, pick up and store both for the retailer and for the consumer. So you could have a double win there from a sustainability and a value perspective to both the business and the consumer. So moving back a little bit to the digitally native brands, we've seen very few examples of these digitally native brands that are actually profitable today. Everyone's trying to come up with things to get profitable and get to scale because that's when profitability comes. But there are very few brands who are ever going to make it to be Amazon or Wayfair. And so as customer acquisitions costs rise, as infrastructure cost is not getting cheaper, it's getting more expensive, what do you think the answer to these digitally native brands is? One of the answers could be offline and opening stores, which is a benefit. but. A lot of these digitally native brands are not profitable, and they're they're gobbling up market share, but unprofitable market share.
1: And that's why I always bring up the the product assortment. I think that there's a lot of um, costs tied up in uh, even product creation and preventing stockouts. For example, online, I think that's that's a that's a whole other conversation. But I do think that there's a lot of value in having that merchandising strategy conversation with retailers, especially the digitally native ones, because when they have an endless aisle, which I brought up earlier, a lot of brands are just creating this huge assortment and there's no need for it. Um, They don't need to have every single style of t-shirt, pants, um, footwear. They need to concentrate on, okay, what is actually working? Let's shift to a seasonless model so that we can produce less. We um, have more of a focus of let's provide the customer what they actually want instead of giving them this, you know, 4,000 skew range. Then that will help to eliminate some of those costs. Because it's not only about customer acquisition and marketing dollars, but it's also about let's talk about the actual product. Let's talk about how, how long are you taking to, not only create the product, but are you using digital tools when you're going back and forth with your factories? Are you creating uh, the product with tech packs and you're creating uh, multiple tech packs for one garment? That's a waste.
0: Can you educate the consumer or the listener, I'm sorry, on what a tech pack is?
1: Yeah, sure. A tech pack is uh, basically the instructions of a garment that you would give the factory. So what um, I've seen in my entire career and still see to this day is that Garments are, for example, garments and footwear, really, um, they're adjusted slightly and then the tech pack is redone. Once that tech pack is redone, it's sent back and forth and samples are sent back and forth mostly overseas. Um, And that is not only a time waster, but it's also just such a waste of um, energy. Uh, It's not efficient. So that's something that also adds to the cost of the, the product if we could look at the product differently, um, making sure that there's a purpose for each product, then you don't need to have 4,000 SKUs. You should never have 4,000 SKUs. Nobody is ASOS except ASOS. They have 4,000 SKUs, I think. Um, But I think that there's there's a lot of value to look at the entire end-to-end process and not just the cost of customer acquisition with certain KPIs that are digitally native.
0: Very insightful. Thank you for teaching us about tech packs. Welcome. What else didn't we talk about that you think we should be talking about today?
1: I love to talk about the purpose of the Shaw Mall. That's something that has been top of mind, especially the last um, few weeks. And also in my newsletter, I, I talk about it quite a bit, that um, there is a purpose to the mall because it does bring communities together. But I do think that you don't need as many um, because physical retail is not dead by any means. Um, but the purpose of the mall definitely is is changing. It needs to evolve.
0: I start from the premise of majority of consumers can't afford to pay for shipping on every product. And majority of retailers can't afford free shipping. The most efficient and affordable way to deliver goods to the American consumer is a physical store. I start with that premise, which is at scale, the most efficient and affordable way to deliver goods to the American consumer is via a store. Now that's skewed a little bit because there are many brands that are unprofitably selling goods and you have unique things that happen like with Walmart and Amazon, who, if you were going to return it, they told you don't return it, just keep it. And we'll send you another one. That was pretty wild. Many brands couldn't do that, right? Not There's very few brands that could afford to do that and have the gumption to do that. That is pretty game changing. Right. But still to this day, the most affordable way to deliver goods to the American consumer is a physical store. So I think one of the things that we discount all too often, I think over the course of time, maybe not over the next six months, but over the course of time, there is a purpose and value. There, There's an experiential piece. There's a bringing communities together piece. There is a attraction piece. I wanna to touch it. There is this discovery piece where it's a place of discovery. There's an instant gratification piece still to this day. One of the purposes of a store is if I'm driving down the road and I want something, bing, bang, boom, I can just pop in and grab it. But I think one of the things we miss and we don't talk about enough, given the evolution of stores is is the place that both people, the consumer and the businesses can get the best value is through a physical store. At some point, the rubber will meet the road on that. And one of the interesting things we're seeing today, a lot of the VC brands were talking about they're done trying to acquire new customers. Let's focus on keeping the existing ones because brand loyalty is a challenge today. See, one of the things that's interesting is I am on an island on this and you said it earlier. We said, you say we have too many physical stores. I think we have too many online stores and not enough great physical stores. I don't think we're overstored in physical, I think we're overstored digitally. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we had 1.8 million online stores in America. And I think we had, the numbers been, it was less in physical stores by a huge number. Well, I would tell you through the pandemic that probably the number of physical stores went down and the number of online stores went up. And think about this. So if online has like triple, quadruple the amount Of physical stores. Yet today, just about 80% of all retail sales are done in a physical store. About 20% are done digitally. So you have 80% of the sales going to four times less the amount of stores. So to me, that would say, you know, we keep talking about we're overstored in America. We have too many digital stores. You could just look at, I'm not sure if you know, when someone goes to a website, what is the conversion rate, average conversion rate for a digitally native brand? Do you know? I'm not sure. I know know it's super low. Yeah, average is
1: quite low.
0: Quite low. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a store, conversion rates are pretty strong. They're like significantly more than online. And then to go and the cost to get that consumer to your website is significant. I don't start with the premise that we have too many stores. We might have some boring stores that need to change. Yeah. We may have some oversized stores. We yeah. may have some stores that need to evolve. But I think it's hard to argue that. We don't have too many digital stores. I think we're to a point where we should start having the discussion. Are we oversaturated with online stores? I mean, how many stores can be on Shopify? How many until it's too many?
1: I mean, I think, I think you bring up some interesting points. There's a few pieces missing where for a physical retailer, a lot of times the customer will shop pre-shop online before they come into the store. So it's really about the purpose of not only the digital store that you're saying that there are too many, but also the physical stores, which I think there are too many. Um, Too many that do not serve a purpose or that are just a waste of space and that they are so ancient, they should be on the Flintstone. Like we need to change the way that we look at all stores, no matter the channel.
0: Yeah, well, for starters, I think omni-channel is real and I think it's important to be omni-channel. I think what you said is interesting the part that I would challenge you on is just when you think about the economics physical stores even the ones that you say let's talk about from a business perspective not a consumer perspective I think it's the consumer behaviors changing but yeah. even stores there were Sears and Kmart stores that you would walk into and be like these are terrible but you know what some of those were profitable so are they a bad retailer? Are they worse than the, re- the digitally native brand that everybody loves but can't make any money? At the end of the day, there's a balance between serving the consumer and making money. At some point, to s- you have to serve the consumer in a profitable manner. I think it's an unfair assessment of retail when we don't talk about this and we only talk about serving the consumer needs, changing consumer behavior. These are all real but if we're not going to do it profitably it's unsustainable whereas there are many Kmart's that you would walk into 5 years ago and go this is terrible yeah and they make more money than all these some of these sexy digitally native brands though who's a better retailer
1: i don't think you need to have that hierarchy of retailers like who's the best retailer and who isn't i agree I think, you know i think that um yeah th- there're probably too many digitally um, digital stores. There are probably too many brands out there. We, I mean, just speaking from a merchant perspective, um, there's way too much product in the world. There's yes, way that- too much product being developed. Um, the landfills are full. <laughs> it's, you know, we, we could talk about that for a long time. But I, th- that's where I go back to. There must be a purpose for every every store, whether digital or not.
0: Headline news, my industry, everybody's industry was like calling on like Kmart's not good, they need to go away. Yet some of the Kmart stores on a standalone basis, the company did all this were profitable. And so is that enough of a purpose?
1: Yeah, because if I'm sure that wherever that Kmart store is located, the one that you're talking about, it serves that community. Yeah. And if it wasn't there, what would that community do? Where would they go? They would have no options, and we're seeing that across um, even the shopping malls that are losing that middle retailer. So many of them close down. No matter where you look, Canada, the U.S., or across Europe, a lot of stores close down. And the fact is, there's no one to. Re- there are no stores or brands to replace those stores. And I challenge you, in saying that you know, some digitally native brands um, do not need to exist, but maybe those are the ones that need to fill in those those middle tier gaps. I don't
0: think that digitally native brands don't need to exist. I think they need to exist. I've been a consumer of some. I'm saying that the pendulum has shifted too much. We keep saying we're overstored in America. I still don't see a great argument as to why people say that. Majority of retail sales are at stores, physical. And you hear all these stats about per capita per square foot compared to other countries. I don't know why that is the benchmark. Yeah. What is clear though, is there's not a discussion that we have all these digitally native brands, many of which haven't proven to be profitable. And we keep adding these. Yeah. And to me, that's the discussion that I think America is tired of the discussion that we're overstored and they're showing with their wallets that that's not true. And They're not showing with their wallets that we have too few digitally native brand stores, but yet we still keep opening them. So that's all I'm saying is discussion. I think we need both. I'm a big fan of Omni Channel. I think we need both. I'm just saying the discussion is very one-sided today. And I think it needs to be a little more even keeled. The last thing I would say is that you mentioned that we have too much product. Yeah. Take away the sustainability piece, too much product, in your world led to the markdown frenzy that we've had in the world, right? You have to mark it down because we have too much product, right? And that is the, you know, clearly the death of the retailer, right? Uh, One of the analysts I know, Simeon Siegel, he says, we don't have an oversaturation of stores in America. We have an oversaturation of discounts. And that has been a huge challenge for retailers in in the product. Here's my question for you coming from the buying world. Is it too much product or is it too much of the same product?
1: So... From a merchant perspective, what I can tell you is that we produce too much. We produce too much because we are stuck with the old ways of working with traditional buying seasons. So you buy at a minimum for four seasons of the year. Usually, you have six drops. And of course, fast fashion is a lot more. As the stores were reopening, um, especially here in Canada, uh, they were opening in Markdown season. So as soon as the stores opened, everything was on sale because the retailer did not change the way they managed their assortment and their line plan. Markdowns are generally built into the line plan and the way that buyers buy. So they expect to have markdowns at certain points in the year. Um, that is what effectively needs to change dramatically. Uh, we need to shift the way that we buy product, the way that we assort product ranges and product mixes and just scrap those seasons because we don't need to have them. Yes, we need newness um, you know, throughout the year, I'm not discounting that, but I don't think that an entire range needs to be brand new all the time.
0: I think a brand that does this incredibly is Nike, yes. right? You need sneakers all year round, number one. So your point is they're seasonless, right? And there's a scarcity of product, therefore, they can grow price, people race to it, and scarcity creates margin, right? And in fact, if you hold those new, we can see by StockX and GOAT that yep. these products actually appreciate and value. They're almost an investment sneakers. And I think they're a, an incredible case study to what you're talking about of seasonless product. And they don't overproduce, and therefore they hold price and grow price. Mm-hmm and the consumer still stands in lines at Foot Locker and Nike stores, shows up on their website and can't wait to buy it. I think they're like an incredible example of what you're talking about.
1: I agree. I mean, look at Kanye. That's a great example. He he has a beef with Nike and he still wear Nike. He still wears Nike <laughs> considering he's under the Adidas umbrella. But um, I think that sneakers are, are a great um, category that does a really good job with exclusivity of product and um, not as much overbuying, but there's a lot of challenges around footwear, um, where it just takes like you know almost two years to produce a shoe
0: yeah. from
1: concept to market.
0: That's a lot. I didn't fashion know that. Shoes, years.
1: yeah. In terms of fast fashion shoes, um, that's a little bit different. Uh, there's a lot of waste um, in that area in product development. And then, with fashion, with apparel, we I, you know we're all pretty much aware of you know what's happening in the world. Um, you know, look at you know boohoo and of course zara and h and m. Um, there's a lot of challenges as in fast fashion because they have so many drops. So they're constantly part of that markdown cycle, and they buy into that markdown cycle because it drives in a different customer. A full price customer is different from your markdown customer. So it's almost like, oh, we have this huge customer base because we really have two different types of customer and we're able to serve both. But can they maintain margins with always being on markdown? Not really.
0: I think that's where Nike just crushes it. So uh, they're really good. And I had no idea. Thank you for enlightening me. It takes two years to go from concept to in the store for a shoe.
1: For some shoes, yes. Because the way that you develop a shoe, it's not... It's not like you would a garment where you have to create the the tool, um, the actual thing to make the rubber sole. It's it's not really the tech pack um, that I'm talking about. It's more like the actual, um, the molds that you need in the factory to actually produce it. It, it takes a lot more than it would um, to cut and sew a garment.
0: Interesting, I had no idea. So the sneakers, the hot sneakers that Nike's thinking about creating today, those will be on the shelves in 2024?
1: In some cases, in some cases not. If they're using um, digital product creation to help create that product, then it obviously speeds up that time to market, which is is what we want to do. We wanna get faster to market. In cases even garments take a long time, um, you know, in some cases, 12 to 16 months.
0: Well, listen, this was great. We're running short on time. I've got three more questions for you. Are you ready? Okay. Question one. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, and a difficult one for me to answer, actually, because I kind of want to say Top Shop, uh, the old school OG Top Shop, okay. because I grew up in Britain. So I, I would say Top Shop from the 90s.
0: All right. Question two. What is the last product over $20 you bought in a store?
1: That's not grocery.
0: Whatever you want.
1: Well, then I have to say grocery.
0: What would you buy over $20? Rack
1: of lamb.
0: <laughs> All right. I like rack of lamb. Okay. Last question. If Lisa and Chris were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in?
1: Stationary.
0: Stationary? Yes. Wow. Target Char-
1: makes the best stationery. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Huh. I had no idea. Stationary. You see? This is why these questions are great. You learn something. Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever said stationary on that question? I'm blown away.
1: My my second answer would be beauty, obviously, but definitely stationary.
0: Well, listen, this was great. I really appreciate it. Let's stay connected. Yes. If people want to find you, how can they find you?
1: Uh, they can find me on Twitter at The Merchant Life. Um, I have a newsletter, merchantlife.com. And of course, LinkedIn and Instagram. I'm all across social. But LinkedIn is a good place to find me.
0: Great. Well, Lisa, let's stay connected. Share ideas. I look forward to catching up more with you. And thanks so much.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you wanna share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.